Welcome to Map the Maze. I wanted to share the ideas and thoughts in the podcast that you're about to listen to with a wider audience. But please know that nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal, financial, or mental health advice. It is really important that you seek independent, professional advice to help you with your situation and your circumstances. Knowledge is power. So let's get to it. Hi, and welcome back to Map the Maze. So something that I love is reading books. And as a mediator, I find that I read a wide selection of books. And I really wanted to share some of the books that I found helpful, insightful, interesting with people who are listening to this podcast. So one of the great joys that I think mediators have is We Are Magpies that because there is no one discipline which informs our practice, we feel empowered to seek out new ideas and find practice tools everywhere. And that means a lot of reading. So the book that I wanted to share with you for this podcast is called The Good Divorce. And there are two basic ideas that I think she shares in the introduction, Constance Aaron's, which are really helpful. The first is we need to normalize what is happening, that divorce separation is a process, that it can feel isolating for a lot of people, that people may feel embarrassed or ashamed about what's happening, but it's really important for people to know that they're not alone and that there are ways to move through the process. And the second one is an interesting idea, and I think one that can seem difficult to believe, but Based on her research, she's saying it's never too late to make the divorce better. And I think for a lot of people who would agree in their calmer moments that they've made mistakes, that there are choices that if they had the chance for a do-over, they would make different choices. I think it's really helpful to know that you can always make it better, that you can always stop additional pain and pain going forward. So does Constance Ahrens reveal the secrets to a good divorce? I think she does. Um, what's interesting is she conducted a study in the US in the 90s. So I appreciate that is a long time ago. Uh, her study was called the Binuclear Family Study. And she used the study as a basis for her work, for her theories, and also for the book. She uses the term binuclear because I think definitely one of the challenges for Aaron's in the 90s, and she was a divorced person, was this sense that somehow the family was broken. And her use of the word binuclear is a way of reflecting what she felt was a right reality for her family, which was that instead of having one nuclear family, now the family had two centers. And it's an idea that I think has been echoed by other practitioners. Another book that I'm very excited to talk about on a podcast episode someday is a book by Robert Emery called Two Homes, One Childhood. I'll put the names of these in the description. Um, but again, another book which is incredibly insightful, but also talks about the reality that for children of a separated family, it's not that their family is broken, 
but the reality is they now have two centers for that family. So what were some of the key findings that she had? And this is interesting. So I guess just to set the scene, this is research that was done in the 90s. She conducted the research with 98 families who were picked at random from court files in California that the families, um, she met with the parents, not the children, but she met with the parents at one year, three years, and then five years post-divorce. So she was able to look at how their situations changed and developed. One of the key findings was to actually highlight the types of divorce which people can experience. And whilst this is based on her research from the 90s, I think it's really valuable. And definitely for a lot of the work that I do in family mediation now, I think her ideas are foundational and definitely still valid in terms of the experience um, of the clients that I work with. So the first group of people she identified were what she called, and apologies for the names, perfect pals. So she said that was about 12% of families after a year. So these are couples where there's a high level of interaction, a high level of communication, that for these people, their divorce didn't overshadow the positive elements of their relationship. They were able to continue working closely together. The second group she called cooperative colleagues, and that was about 50% of couples after the first year, that that was where there was a moderate level of interaction, there was high communication around children's matters, and that these couples could find a way to cooperate around the children. I think what's interesting is these people weren't, by any stretch of the imagination, superstars or saints or heroes, but what they did have and what they worked on was an ability to compartmentalize the adult relationship that was ending and their co-parenting relationship, which was continuing. And that idea is very important to modern family mediation. In fact, it's something that we try and instill when we're doing training with mediators, but also we try and talk to parents about as a key way to alter what future interactions look like. The third category she identified was called angry associates. And she said that was about 25% of couples after the first year. The main difference that she identified between angry associates and cooperative colleagues, so again, moderate interaction, relatively moderate communication, was the way that they managed conflict. So it's not that the cooperative colleagues didn't have conflict. They had just found a way to either manage it or avoid it that angry associates hadn't found. And the last group, the remaining 13% fiery foes. So this is where there was low interaction, low communication, rarely interacted with each other. Interactions were generally litigious um, and they were still very attached to each other. So that's an interesting thing to say, that people who are in the fiery foes category are still attached. The reason is the conflict has never ended. So that instead of finding a way to move on and mourn for the losses that people suffer in divorce, fiery foes continue the battle. And whilst people would, I think, strongly deny that they are attached to the other person, 
they are locked in what we would call negative intimacy, that there isn't a way to escape, to mourn, to grieve the loss because they are still in the battle. So in reality, what does that mean? What do these somewhat homespun descriptions mean in reality? So she gives a very concrete example of looking at a child's high school graduation. Obviously, they're American. So if you were perfect pals, you would probably plan the celebrations together as a family, and it would be completely natural for everybody to be involved together. Cooperative colleagues might plan a celebration together. Both would definitely attend. And that in both of those cases, perfect pals and cooperative colleagues, children are free to focus on their graduation, on their event. They don't need to worry that mum and dad are going to have an argument, that there's going to be a scene, that they will need to be distracted from their special day by focusing on their parents' needs. The next two categories she gave as an example were angry associates, and she said probably these people would celebrate separately, so they might organize separate events, and they would avoid contact with each other. And the last one, fiery foes, probably the saddest of all, that one parent may be excluded. So one parent might organize something that the other parent wouldn't be permitted to attend, and the child then has to decide, how am I going to celebrate this day? Which parent do I have to pick? So in mediation, we try and ask parents to make a choice, to choose not to be perfect pals, because I think that's a very high bar, but to try and be cooperative colleagues. And we talk a lot about moving towards co-parenting, about not focusing on the adult relationship, about not focusing on negatives that have come out of the adult relationship, but focusing on co-parenting. And we do that by looking at guidelines, talking about contingencies, trying to find ways to help the couple move forward at a time when most people want to do nothing but be as far away as possible from the other person. So this is one way to transition, to create order from chaos, to create a pathway to a new identity. And Aaron's talks about transition as well. So she says that for the people she worked with in the study and in her subsequent practice, she identified three things that can help people to transition. Roles, rules, and rituals. So when we think about divorce, one of the things that is key is understanding that divorce involves the loss of existing roles, that people are being asked to shift into new roles for what does this new family arrangement look like. The old roles that people had don't help. And the challenge is that because our identity can be very bound up with our roles, this makes people feel often very vulnerable. So the reality is that we are simultaneously asking people to cope with the loss of an existing role and also envisage and establish new roles. And as people try to exit a role, they can struggle to incorporate the past identity into their new role. So she calls that a hangover identity, that there may be parts of the old role that you had within the family that it may be inappropriately you're trying to incorporate into the new role. So this is something that I think working with a therapist or a counselor can assist with. What were the roles that made up 
the former identity when you were an intact family? What are the challenges that come with the new identity? What do the new roles look like? You know, perhaps somebody has been married for a very long time and those roles become very entrenched. Um, They could have been part of a very active and shared social life. So the divorce not only means the loss of that intimate adult relationship, but also friend relationships, peer relationships, community relationships. Some of these roles will continue potentially and some can end. So the second way she said people deal with transition is they look at rules. And she said rules can be either explicit or implicit. You can think in your own family and personal relationships, there are rules which are explicit and there are maybe unspoken rules which everybody expects the other person to follow. But what she says is that the rules that you had in place are now obsolete. And this is definitely an area that we work on in mediation, trying to help parents to come up with new rules on communication, boundaries, behavior, how they'll deal with new partners. That's a normal part of the family mediation process from my perspective. So if we just ask people to sit down with a blank piece of paper, designing what life is supposed to look like is incredibly difficult. Most people that I work with have never had conversations like this before. They've never had to figure out what are the rules around communicating with each other? What are the boundaries that we want to put in place? Trying to figure out how to change rules, to put rules in place, maybe for the first time, to make things explicit is really important. And key a key part of that is ending assumptions. So when everybody lives under the same roof, when everybody is in the same family, it's very easy to fall back on assumptions. Oh, if I don't make it home in time, I know the other parent will be there. They'll put dinner on the table. Or if I can't be there on to pick up some a child from this particular event, I know the other parent will find a way to make that work. Those types of assumptions happen all the time in a normal family. But once the family separates, the adults separate, it's really important to make sure that there are no assumptions, that everything is expressed. It's really important to help everybody to make co-parenting work but also the establishment of those new rules, the sticking to the new rules is a really key way of helping to rebuild trust as co-parents. So in mediation, people often say to me, but I don't trust the other person. There is no trust that the things that have happened in the adult relationship have destroyed the trust that was there and that one parent in particular often feels betrayed. And as adults, there is nothing that a family mediation can do to rebuild that trust. But what we can do in family mediation is help parents to find a way, a pathway to work together to rebuild trust as co-parents. That as adults, you may never get that back, but you can get trust back if everybody sticks to the rules they've agreed to. You can rebuild trust as co-parents. Um, In another episode, I'm going to talk about the work of John Gottman, but he talks a lot about how do you, um, as he puts it, build up that relationship of trust, because it is really important, given that for a lot of people, there's a long road ahead of having to interact and work together for a common goal, i.e. the benefit of the children. 
And the last one that Aaron's talks about is rituals. So this is really personal. And she talks about rituals as a way to soothe anxiety, because if we have a ritual or we know what the appropriate ritual is, we understand how are we supposed to behave in this situation? How are we supposed to mourn, particularly around the end of a relationship? Um, and they can give us a way of understanding the context of what is happening. So she says they show us how to acknowledge what is happening to us. So one of the big challenges, I think, for a lot of people is that divorce and separation lead to the end of those rituals, that people may have had rituals in place for special occasions. So it might be a birthday, it might be a religious festival, it could be Christmas. And these two can be explicit, that we often don't talk about them, but sometimes they can be really important. And I can think of a couple of mediations in the last month or so where ritual was really important to the family and we talked about it. What would that look like now that they were in two different homes? So some separated families will try and create new rituals as a separated family and some may make their own separate rituals in a binuclear family. But I think definitely thinking about what rituals are important in your life to your family, how you want to carry those forward or adapt them is a really important part of that transition and maybe one that we don't talk about enough, that we're very focused on um, financial costs and expenses and time and holiday days. But we don't talk enough about rituals that exist within families and how those can be honored. But if you think back to your own childhood, there will have been, even if you come from a non-religious family, there will be rituals that you've had that only happened in your family. And they may be cultural, they may have been personal to your parents or to your extended family, but those are part of the fabric of a family for a child. And if we can find a way to recreate those and to let them hold space in a separated family, that can help people adjust to the transition from being in an intact family to being, hopefully, uh, cooperative colleagues. So one of the things that people say to me is, I'm not ready to work with the other parent. I'm not ready to trust the other parent. I don't want to be friends with the other parent. And that is a challenge that sometimes I see people where there's a gap, quite a significant gap between the future that one parent is envisaging where everybody's going on holiday together. Maybe they're sharing rooms. Um, people are sharing Christmas, um, a very cozy future to how the other person might feel which could be, I don't know if I can go to a parent-teacher evening with the other parent. I don't know if I want to be in the same room with the other person for graduation. So they're at the other end of the spectrum. I guess what I would say is having that conversation, understanding the emotional cost, the emotional fallout from the divorce, and its impact on each party is really relevant. But i I would say that in mediation, the goal generally is to try and help people find a path to being collaborative colleagues that we, sorry, cooperative colleagues that we appreciate 
that perfect pals is not possible for most people. But I think we also understand that angry associates and fiery foes and the the hardest category where there is no contact, dueling duos, um, the names are terrible, so apologies, but they communicate an idea. Um, Those options, angry associates, fiery foes, dueling duos, are destructive of individuals, so the, the adults involved, but are also not supportive of children that the research that's been done talks about the benefit that children have for the involvement of both of their parents in their lives. And if both parents are going to be involved, we need to find a way for both parents to interact in a way that is respectful, that is courteous, and that is mindful of the impact on their kids. So mediation, definitely, we are focused on how do we build cooperative colleagues. And the last thing I wanted to share from Constance Ahrens is, I think, surprising to some people who may be listening to this thinking, that is not where my other, my former spouse is. But it's something that I hear from almost everybody that I work with. Um, So I wasn't surprised when I read it, but I think it is surprising for people who are in the middle of a divorce or a separation. Almost everybody that she interviewed, so it was 90% of the people that they surveyed that they worked with, wished, wanted to be on better terms. It doesn't mean that people have the skills to be able to do that or even understand what it might require in order to be on better terms, but it was a desire. It was a want. So often I see people and there is a very strong sense that the other person has um, discarded them or written them off or is pushing them away or doesn't want them to be a parent. But actually, most of the people that I work with and the vast majority of the people that Aaron's worked with do want to be on better terms with the other person. There maybe just isn't an obvious pathway. So lots to think about. So I guess in terms of secrets to a good divorce, trying to find that pathway to being cooperative colleagues. So we'll talk more about that in another episode. But thanks for listening and take care. Thank mm-hmm. you.